welcome to the Doc Arena podcast in association with Film Ireland. My name is Ross Whitaker, and in this fortnightly podcast series, I talk to filmmakers about their documentaries, both in terms of the subjects they choose and the way in which they fund, craft and distribute their work. In this episode, I'm delighted to speak to Oscar-nominated director Dror Mara about his new feature documentary, The Human Factor, which is widely available on demand in Ireland and the UK from May 21st, as well as at Dogwolf On Demand. Dror's film unfolds the epic behind-the-scenes story of the United States' 30-year effort to secure peace in the Middle East, recounted from the unique perspective of the American mediators on the front lines. With exceptional access, this film gives incredible insight into the politics that has prevented lasting peace between Israel and its Arab neighbours. Listeners should please note that the interview took place before the recent escalation of violence in the West Bank. Here's the trailer for The Human Factor. Middle East peace is always a very attractive proposition. It's a very sexy topic. I cannot think of a Secretary of State that did not want to get involved in in the Middle East. And by the way, all of them think they can reinvent the wheel. Arafat is beaming. For him, he's arrived. This was emotionally wrenching for Rabin, knowing he was going to have to shake Arafat's hand. It was history in the making. The idea of breaking through that taboo was just unbelievable. And I can see that something changes in the relationship. They had moved from being adversaries to partners in peace. We say to you today, in a loud and a clear voice, enough of blood and tears. Enough. When I look back now, we saw the world the way we wanted it to be. We did not see the world the way it was. Thanks for joining me, Dror. It's great to see you. I wanted just to sort of jump straight into it by asking you about access, because it really strikes the viewer straight away, the amazing level of access you have, and also the breadth of access. You know, it's not just access to one of the moderators or mediators, it's to quite a large number of them. Can you talk a little bit about how you, you go about that in your work? It's something that, that if you look across your filmography, it's something that comes up time and time again. You get great access to some very high-level people. How do you approach that? Well, I mean, it's always, it always starts with someone. And uh, I, always, I don't want to compare it to the mafia, but there is something, you know, that he vouched for you, that guy vouched for you in front of his friends, and basically saying, you know, he's a good guy, you can trust him, and, and you, can come, you can trust him and come along. And it always starts with one person. And, and when, when that person is persuaded, then it opens the door. And really, I think that what I use mostly is that I'm interested in what they have to say. I'm not coming to judge. I'm basically, my motivation is to understand, because I believe most of my project or all my project are dealing with good men, good people, good, good human beings who has a desire to change something, that they see that something is wrong and they want to change that. Sometimes it leads to horrible outcomes, but the basic desire is to change and to create something which is better than what they have uh, uh, seen or, or acted upon. And I'm coming to understand what was inside the room or what was there from a point of view of really someone who is there just to listen, to understand, not judging. And I think it, it creates kind of... Um, a bond 
which allows them to open up. I never betray the trust. I never. That means I, I will never ever take out of context sentences. You know, the, the latitude that the director has is almost, you know, I can do whatever I want almost because you connect, you connect sentences in a way that you can manipulate everything. But I, what I'm, you know, yesterday there was a screening of the human factor here in Israel and three of the gatekeepers, three of the former heads of Shinbet from my previous movie came as a friends to the movie just to see it. So, and the fourth one was sick. The fifth one is a politician. So, so it was really nice to see that they, although the movie was a bit harsh on them, they still come and, and, and share that and they feel that they were treated fairly. It's one thing getting access to meeting the people and even to drawing a connection with them. But it's another thing to kind of get them to speak deeply about their experience and to feel that that is, that they are allowed to share it maybe in this case. You know, these are negotiations that happen behind closed doors. Is there another element to the access in that regard in terms of of getting them to go to places um, that they may not have spoken to in an interview setting before? It's a good question. Look, basically, I believe in very long interviews means I can, just an example for the human factor, I interviewed Dennis Ross, who is the main protagonist in the movie, almost for 35 hours in different stages of, of you know, in different places, uh, different dates, of course. Each one of them, the, the rest of the, the people there, at least 10 hours. So, you know, it's always the first hour is you start to speak and then you slowly build that trust. He sees you, you sees him. I'm interested really I'm really deeply interested in psychology and 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 I think also what contributed to that at, at least in the human factor is that they were out of office they are they almost already left they don't they don't kind of play any formal role although Rob Mali is now in the government negotiating the Iran the new Iran nuclear deal on behalf of the Biden administration but they allow themselves to go back to look they failed the negotiators at the end failed, so they allow themselves to go back and try to analyze why. And I think that leads to openness because they really want to understand with me what went wrong there. Another element that I've, of it that I found very interesting, and I thought it was a great choice, was that you only interviewed the mediators. You didn't look at, say, well, you may have, I suspect you didn't pursue Bill Clinton, for instance, or politicians on the Israeli side. And it becomes a perfect capsule of, of a point of view of a particular group of people. Was that a very conscious choice? Was that something you wrestled with at all? No, absolutely. I could have, you know, I, in my other project, which I'm editing now, I interviewed Madeleine Albright, Jim Baker, all of them were interviewed to the other project. but And I could have interviewed them. But for me, I wanted to understand that from the point of view of the professionals of those who were uh, tasked by creating the bridges between the sides and to create that kind of contract at the end, which will lead to a peace. Not to hear politicians. For me, politicians has other reasons to speak, uh, different reasons, but the professionals can speak to you on a professional level. This was our job. Our job was to create the bridge or to create the contract between them and we failed and this is the reason why we failed or same thing. So it was important from the beginning, from the get-go, to speak only with the professionals. And it's funny because I, as soon as 
I understood what the film was about. I just thought that is a fantastic choice. You know, I, I really want to know what these guys are going to say. And it's not necessarily a group of people that everyone would instantly have thought of. Let's make a documentary about them because they're, they're almost from the outside, secondary to the drama. But when you watch the film, you realize how central they are to it. How did you actually come to decide to do that? Because it seems like a no-brainer once you realize what you've done, but maybe before you did it or before you know anyone would look at it, they might think, you know, is there a film in that? Look, it's, it's again, it's a very good question. The project started at the, at the, at the office of Secretary of State, former Secretary of State uh, Henry, Henry, Henry Kissinger. And basically for another project, when Dennis helped me, and it was in 2015, and, and we went into the office of, of Kissinger, and Kissinger told me, Dror, sit outside for a second, or sit beside, I want to speak to, to Dennis. And he was just before giving a testimony to the Senate Foreign Relation about the Iran nuclear deal, which was about to, to be signed two months or three months afterwards. And he kind of, I sat in the room, and Henry Kissinger, 94 years old man, very sharp, very concentrated, started to have a Q&A with Dennis Ross. And Kissinger was speaking to the actually kind of asking in question what will happen if, what happened there, what will happen, what would the Supreme Leader do, what will Bibi Netanyahu do, what will the President do, how? And it for me was, I think, the most fascinating or fascinating 40 minutes because you are almost, you know, like a fly on the wall. And I went, when I went out from that meeting, I said to Dennis, look, um, I felt like I'm in the White House, like when the president is speaking to one of his advisors and want to understand what will be the ramification of doing or acting in one way or another. And he said to me, you know, this is exactly what happens in the White House. When, when President Clinton is speaking to me, when President Obama is speaking, that's exactly how it, it goes. And then I said to him, look, I've never heard, you know, the, you were in charge of the Israeli-Palestinian-Israeli-Syrian negotiation in the Middle East for the last definitely during the Clinton administration, but you were involved also during the Bush and definitely during the Obama. Would you be able to come and just share with us, share with me what happened behind closed doors? You know, because we get all, only the, the photo ops outside. And I really want to understand inside what happened there. So he said, let me think about it. And then he, he decided to do that. So that's how we got into, I mean, he wanted to do that. And I got to uh, really my task was really to try to understand what happened behind those closed doors and what emerged from that from those hours and hours tens of hours of interviews is the importance of the human factor the importance of how much the personal relationship between the leaders between them themselves them with the with the american president and the negotiators were a main factor of why why we are where we are today and by the way, just another note on that, it was a daunting challenge to edit this movie because it's negotiators speaking about other people, leaders. They're not speaking about themselves mostly. They're speaking about other people from their experience. So, And the, the people are changing all the time. So if we are dealing with drama, normally you build characters and you want to stay with them. But here in this drama, the characters are changing constantly, the main character. So Baker starts the movie, then he goes away, he disappears, then comes Rabin, he's been assassinated, then comes Bibi Netanyahu, he's disappeared, then comes Barak. He dis so you had to create, I mean, it was a daunting challenge 
to create a drama that will engage the people in order to watch that and not to be bored by, you know, I want this, he want that, all the negotiation movies that you see, diplomacy. Yeah, I thought a lot about that when I was watching it, that firstly, you know, and you've mentioned how many hours of interviews you had, um, the film flows very well, um, and it almost seems quite simple, uh, maybe, you know, on first glance, if you're not analyzing it, uh, but it's anything but, because as you say, you have myriad characters, um, you are forced in a way to follow a kind of chronology, which, you, you know, is sometimes something that can make the editing difficult, um, and yet it flows so well. You talk about the daunting challenge. How do you approach that in the edit when you have that much material and, and you're kind of forced into certain situations? How did, you, how did you go about that? Well, I think the most enlightening moment in that process was when I sat with my wife, my beloved wife, who is my harshest critics of all my project, and I listened to her very carefully. So uh, at one point in our home in Berlin, she asked me, what do you think is the most vivid um, moments that you have in, the, in, in, in all the interviews? That... And I told her the story about Rabin saying to Dennis Ross that he is afraid that there will be civil war if he will go to peace with the Palestinians. And then the funny stories about Arafat not shaking, uh, shaking kisses, all that, all that. And I told her, you know, it's about the human factor. At the end, the, the moments that are most engaging are the moments where you understand that these are human beings and what motivates them is human interaction between them. I like you, you don't like me, you give me respect. I don't respect all those kind of, all those kind of moments. And she said, because until then, the, the, the name of the movie was The Negotiators. And then she said to me, you know, Dro, your, the name of the movie should be The Human Factor. And I said, okay, that's that's interesting, because I told her it's it's about human factor. And from that moment on, Oron and me, the editor, kind of look at all the pearls of of those situation, of those anecdotes of human factor, and we build the context around that. We build the context of the it came out, you know, it came chronologically, and then we build the context around those really amazing moments that are being told in the movie. I love that. And it's a really interesting point because I always think that within a film, people will be fascinated by it, could be fascinated by a moment, but without the context, they can't be. So, so it's always a case of like building the context and then delivering the moment. And that just seems to always work for some reason. Here it was the other way around. First, let's find the, the, the moments, those anecdotes that can tell the human story about the relations between them. And there's a lot of stories that have been left out, really amazing stories. And then build the context, take the, because I believe that the audience needs to be with you uh, all the time. You, you cannot leave him behind you because if he's behind you in terms of understanding, I will give you an example. You know, the Oslo Accords for any Israeli means a lot. When, we, when you say in the street in Israel, Oslo, people immediately relate that to the Oslo Accords. But if I will tell any kind of British person in the street, what do you think about Oslo? Maybe he'll know that it is the capital of somewhere, you know, in Northern Europe. Sweden? No, 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 maybe. So um, So they will, you, we needed to create the context of those moments into a wider audience without losing the tension, the dramatic tension inside those, those the, the kind of flow of the movie. And I love the title, The Human Factor, because it immediately makes you think, 
on one level, yeah, the human factor between the characters, but it's more than that. It's the human factor in in terms of how people respond to things within countries, how it influenced the individual lives of each of these mediators. You can see, despite the fact that they're talking about other people, you can see that they are also they also have a narrative arc, particularly in the case of Ross. Was that something that you had to build into the edit as well? You know, how how does he feel at this point and, and how am I going to move his character along as a mediator that's actually talking about other people? And yet you have some nice stories of him contacting his wife and, and so on. And you can see what each of these moments mean to him. Um, so it operates on that level too. Yeah. I mean, I think the most prominent moment is the moment when he, he learns about the assassination of Rabin in, in you could see that he is overwhelmed by the moment, by the memory of that in front of the camera. And, and um, yeah, I mean, they bear scars, all of them, from that period. It's, it's Martin Indyk is speaking about, not in the movie, but, but he, sp- he spoke to me about the scars that he had, heart condition after this. He lost his wife because of that. I mean, divorced because of that process. So each one of them definitely paid a dear price for that process. And you cannot, as they said in the movie, you cannot be uh, uh, do this kind of job without emotionally involved. And you can see that. You can see how engaged they are. You can see. And again, it was the balance in the editing. When do you, you know, it's like a nod in a, in a, in a sound studio where when do we, we, we give them more to speak about their feelings and when do you, we go into the stories of the other character that are there? It, it sounds like it would take a long time to figure all of that out. And also something I'm interested in, in knowing with a film like this is do you do screenings of it for audiences to get reaction? It must be a tricky one because obviously people would have an emotional reaction to it. And it, it's quite, some of it, you know, is quite explosive, I suppose. So how do you kind of gauge when you feel the edit's coming to an end and how long is that process? Well... In this case, the process, not constantly, I, I, normally uh, it was around three years, but it's not, it's, I'm, I'm, let's say, editing two to two months, get into a spot and then I leave it, let it rest, come back to that, see that with my editors, it's the same editor that edited with me, uh, the gatekeepers, now this and now the other project. So we kind of take that time, the breath that needed to judge what you did, because, you know, sometimes you edit something and you think, wow, it's brilliant. And then you come back to that. A month later and you say well, how stupid could i be to think that this is brilliant so i think that the the breath of time gives you the latitude or the the opportunity to go back and to revisit yourself over and over and over again and since my movies i'm not going to do that i think anymore but since my movie have a huge scope they're trying to tell something which is beyond just the the here and now they're trying to tell a bigger story uh, it takes time you need that time to to come and revisit yourself. So, I'm normally it takes my project needs time to go. Uh, screening I do only when I'm quite sure that this is something that I stand behind. It's no, normally when you get closer to the end of the edit process when I'm happy. I'm not doing I'm not doing screening when I'm I have to be happy with what I have, and then I'm open to listen to people, but I have to be first of all happy with what I'm doing. It's an interesting one. You know, you've mentioned, obviously, the, the Gatekeepers a couple of times, and, and that was a, a massively successful documentary that you made. It was nominated for an Oscar. How does that 
affect your career, I suppose? And and does it help you raise money for a documentary like this? What, what What's that process? Does it give people a trust when you say, I'm going to make a film about the mediators in the Middle East? They go like, okay, I know who you are. I know the quality that you can bring. I know the point of view you're going to have. And, and they kind of get a sense of what the project is going to be in a much easier way. I mean, look, being as, as Michael Barker from Sony Classics, they took the movie, this movie as well to, to actually they're going to uh, release it in the state in the beginning of May. He said to me back then, he said, you don't understand the meaning of being, you can head to your title and Oscar nominated director. And, and it does help. It does help. Uh, but I would say it helps in, in, in bringing, I mean, the professionals can really evaluate more the quality of what you bring. Uh, into the into the table when you are saying something like that. Basically, where it helps is in in easing the 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 way to 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 raise money for the next project. That's that's mainly that. It helps in that. I mean, people know you. People understand that you have kind of certain standard or quality of work, and they respond to that. And then I also notice in your filmography that you did a lot of cinematography at an earlier point. Can you talk a little bit about the aesthetics of this project? Again, from the outside, like on first glance, you think, okay, I can really see what elements there are in this film. There's interviews, there's footage, there's, you know, wonderful photographs. Um, but I think there's a lot more to the film than just saying those three things, you know? So can you talk about how you approach those and how you use them in a way to uh, make them feel in a way more than the sum of their parts? Basically, because the movie is behind closed doors of negotiations, where camera, what I thought is that camera is not never there. So my main objective was how do you create visual references to those amazing stories when you don't have those visual references. So I can tell you that I worked in with a, with a studio in England, in London, just to almost recreate some of those moments in a very advanced way, which was there was the story of, of Clinton coming to the to the funeral of Rabin, and when he sees Perez, he hugs him, and 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 I said, look, I have the story, and it's an amazing emotional mov- mov- moment. How will I be able to create that to give it a visual references? And we work with this with that studio in London. To we took actors, <laughs> and we kind of stitched the faces of Perez and Clinton on the faces just to give this hug, but at the end. Luckily enough, I had those amazing photos by the White House, White House photographer. I just needed to present the FOIA Freedom of Information Act. It took my month. It took my nine months, and then I got all those troves of pictures of almost all the stories that I got. Now my challenge was: How do you um, bring them to life? Those photos, those still photos. And it was a huge challenge, which I like CGI a lot. I think that, uh, so I used a lot of techniques which were not known. We invented a lot of things as we went with with, with the studio that I'm working with in France and, and, and created this kind of new way to deal with still photos and to re- bring them more to life. So that was one part of it. The other part of it is how do you choose the archive and what kind of archive are you using in that? So it was also... But from the beginning, I knew that those still photos will be the core or the spine of the visual of the visual uh, um, language of the movie. And you know, sometimes when you deal with stills, stills can capture a moment 
which when you see on a live action when, on, an, on a video, you don't see that moment. So there are really some moments that are captured in stills and, and the expression on the faces is so expressing uh, uh, and so showing what is the emotion that goes inside the person. It's even better than I would have sometimes even visuals. So when you see Rabin, for example, in the movie, there's a moment when Rabin looks at Arafat the first time that he sees them. And you see the expression on Rabin's face, which basically says, what am I going to do with this guy? I don't know him. And all is expressed in that facial expression. Or when you have the moment of, of let's say, Clinton holding Arafat's hand in Camp David, basically saying to him, you have to accept that, don't go. So those moments are amazing. And, and, and the only, th only challenge that I had was to bring them to life in a, in a CGI way. And were you aware that those photos existed when you started the process? No. <laughs> no. Uh, look, what happened is that I got, you know, I asked photos. And my archive researcher in America came back with a few photos from meetings here and there. And I asked her, where are those photos coming from? She said, it's the White House. And I said, can I get the, the source material just to have the source material? Well, she said, no, this is approved by the White House. And then I asked her, how can I get the source material? Is it a possibility? I mean, if it's the White House, can I get? She said, you have to file for a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. So I said, okay. I gathered the dates, which I knew during the negotiation. Rabin comes to the White House for the first time. Bibi comes to the White House. Camp David. And we gathered kind of 13 dates of, of which we wanted to ask for the all the photos that were shot there. And nine months after that, I got... I don't want to exaggerate, but like contact sheets of almost 40,000 uh, stills. And I re remember myself like a little child, you know, going through those stills photos, the, the contact sheets, you know, when you, you know what the contact sheet. So just going like over the photos and seeing all those amazing moments that were told to me, I have a visual reference for that. I can tell the story visually from that. So then the process became, you know, very easy, very easy, you know, all the CGI and all of that. but. <laughs> Yeah, it was an amazing day. Still now, you know, I'm like, also my project now, which I'm doing now, I get a lot of photos. And every time that I get new photos, you know, it's just this kind of excitement going over and trying to under analyze those photos. Can you talk a little bit about the interviews? Because you mentioned you, you interviewed Dennis for 35 hours. And obviously, to create a consistency across those 35 hours, you have to to kind of use certain techniques. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach the aesthetic of, of your interviews? Well, I, I shoot all my interviews on green screen. I mean, I have, I bring either, we do it in the studio. In this case, we did it in the studio with a green screen, or when I do a lot of interviews, I bring a kind of, let's say, movable studio with me. Just this green screen, we build it and then we create it. Because for me, the aesthetic of at the end result, because Let's say, I would say 50, 40 to 50, 60% of the movie, you're going to sit in front of people speaking, talking heads, as we call them. So it needs to be aesthetic. And normally when you go into a, a home or, or, or an office, it's banal. It's really, really boring sometimes. So it gives me a latitude also to, to control the colors, the depth of field, almost everything, and, and, the, and the scenery of, of the background. So you, basically, I'm, I'm recreating the backgrounds at the at, at studio and then combining, as we say, A to B, combining the, the character on the on the background. This I did 
with the gatekeepers, with the human factor, and with my next project. This is what how how I work because at the end of the day, aesthetics. You, I like to control the aesthetic. It's important for me. You mentioned that I was a cinematographer. It's really really important for me, and I I, I want the interview to be free, open because I'm doing that for a long time. So when you are doing it in in a home or in a it's always limited. There are people there. So you need to create the environment where you can do that. And, and the person does can can really concentrate on the interview, on the questions, and not I'm not bothered at all with what, how, you know, the lens and the depth of field, and is it nice or not. No, just concentrate on the interview. And you mentioned that you had the premiere in Israel last night, the, your local premiere. How did it go? How did people respond to the film? Very strongly. I mean, uh, as I, you know, for Israelis, it's their life. It's our life. I mean, um, people cry when they saw, you know, moments that reminded them probably of uh, what they have been through. People were sad at the end because um, the situation is only worse now. People were heartbroken, I would say, because they don't believe that there's something, there's any kind of uh, solvable solution in, in the near future. So for them, it was, you know, I'm telling them about their life and behind the scene, they understand something profound, different from the narrative that we were fed throughout the years. I mean, people came to me and said, we didn't know that this is what happened in Camp David. When you spoke about Barack, what Barack did in Kim David and how he tried to orchestrate everything to his, we didn't know that Rabin was close to Arafat at the end. So it also revealed to them new truths about what happened here. By the way, you know, at the end of the day, when you think about it, the end of the movie, when, when, I, when I say to Dennis and to Martin Indyk about um, what happened in Syria, uh, that people here are relieved. There are some Israelis are relieved because, you know, you could find Iran on front of it. And, and what the answer, this, the answer that you don't know what would have happened if there was peace. But when Martin says, you know, Syria would have been completely different to the way it is now. Imagine how the conflict in Syria and what happened in Syria affected your life in England, affected Europe, affected the state, affected almost whatever we see. So it doesn't stay here. I mean, when people think that the, the, the Middle East stays in the Middle East, no. It comes to you as well. When, when there is problems in Syria and refugees are flowing towards Europe, it affects your life as well. So we live in a world, people have to understand that, that those kind of events now, you know, a year ago, someone in China, a year and a half ago, someone in China ate something and the whole world is in a chaos since then. So. We are in a combined world, which you have to understand that, and we are influencing each other. Is that a motivator in your work, that, that, that kind of relevance? Always. I want to influence. I want to change, especially where I come from. It started with the movie. You know, for me, look, the politicians are the one that takes the most decisive decision that affect our life. And for me, when I saw... It started when I watched Errol Morris' brilliant movie, Fog of War. And, and all of a sudden, wow, you know, this is what goes on inside the room. And the, the deep understanding that there are human beings like you and me, sometimes 
smart, sometimes not. A lot of times, even smart people get create by their decisions catastrophic outcomes. And, and, and we have to understand that. We have to understand that there are people like us there sitting. They're not smarter than us, most of them. And even if they are smart, they take decisions which affected, affects our life in a profound way. And for me, it's almost a life mission to open the door to those moments, to, to kind of see what, why are the reason, why we are where we are, to open that, to show the world why is it like that. How have you, are you taking that forward? You mentioned the projects that you're working on at the moment. On the bio that I read about you, it sounds like you're incredibly busy. <laughs> How do you continue that mission? Because obviously it's not easy to wake up every day and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to influence the world. It's about finding the right project. It's about finding the material that you think can do that. Exactly. I don't look... Uh... Don't get me wrong. I don't wake up every morning and say, how am I going to change the world? I am motivated by interest. I am motivated by interest. That's what motivates me. If I can influence the world by doing that, then fine. So my project now, Corridors of Power, the next project, deals with how decisions have been made at the White House when they learned about genocide and crimes against humanity. After the collapse of the Berlin Wall, when America stood as the only global superpower, what happened there? Why it took three years to intervene in, in, in Bosnia? Why did they decide to intervene in Libya, but not in Syria? So for me, it was exploring the decision, the process of decision making regarding humanitarian intervention, regarding genocide and crimes against humanity. And again, you know, it, it, it will be a movie, a feature length documentary and an eight part series, which the BBC is also involved. So eight part, 60 minutes, which, you know, is going to be shown all over the world. Yes, I'm very busy, but I'm, I'm fortunate enough to deal with subject that I like or I like. I cannot, you know, I, don't, it, it, I, I cannot tell you that I wake up every day going and seeing these horrible images of genocide and I'm happy. But at least I feel that I'm doing something which is important. It's interesting talking about your point of view, because in the last maybe 10 or 15 minutes of, of the human factor, an already powerful film becomes incredibly moving, I think. And what I felt to a certain extent was I was getting to the the sharp edge of how you felt about it, you know, and you feature a couple of your questions and also the quotes that you choose from the mediators are incredibly powerful. Is that a conscious thing, you know, towards the end of the film that almost, you know, you step, you step into the, into the, the scene in a way, not, not in a, in a real way, but in, in some kind of figurative way. You are a very sharp <laughs> question, interviewer as well. Look, yes, definitely. I mean, in all my projects, uh, an ending of a movie is definitely what do you want to say? Is, is, I think the ending of a movie is, in a way, the filmmaker's point of view. And um, again, if I compare it to The Gatekeepers, if in The Gatekeepers I had... A little bit of hope that something can change, which uh, it ends with, with with that kind of notions. Here, I'm completely desperate, or I am, you know, uh, what Gamal, one of the protagonists, says at the end. And unless you are going to accept the other the other side, there is zero hope for a solution. This is how I feel now. And I, again, I don't see now any kind of uh, solution at least in my lifetime. I don't see what, what in Israel they say, 
a, a final deal, a peace process for a peace process. I don't see that happening in in my lifetime here in Israel. It feels like a kind of low point to be finishing on as we as we begin to wrap this interview up. So maybe I'll ask you a couple of more questions. But I suppose one of the things I would hope is that people that listen to it are maybe documentary makers themselves or may want to become documentary makers. Is is there anything about your career that you've learned that, that you feel is a real nugget that you can pass on to other people about filmmaking? Don't compromise on anything. Never compromise. I think filmmaking is hard. Is definitely documentary filmmaking is very very hard, especially from budget budget point of view because the budget are limited. Even me, when I get really, I, I I'm privileged enough to work with large budget. Let's say comparatively, you always find yourself in a in a in a pincer when you don't have enough money to do what you what you. But I mean, don't compromise. Never compromise. Definitely on the story. You have to compromise on other issues, but the story, the story, 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 story. And it's a tough, it's it's really, really a tough job because every documentary filmmaker basically, I mean, if you, if you compare the amount of time uh, that a documentary filmmaker, a director, invests in a project and to the money that he gets at the end, it's, it's, you know, it's really crazy. Because in any other field, you would have earned much more money. So there's something about passion there uh, on doing those projects and, and never lose the passion. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm as a little child in every project that I'm doing, you know, I'm like so, so grateful to the fact that I am privileged to do those kind of things. And so, yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your thoughts with me today. It's, it's a fascinating film, one that I'd highly recommend. And I hope that people will uh, will get a chance to see it very soon. So thanks and Thank uh, best of luck. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks again to Drawer for taking part in the interview. His film, The Human Factor, is widely available on video on demand from May 21st, as well as at Dogwolf on demand. Thanks to Stephen Galvin and Phil Marlin for supporting this podcast and to film composer, and to film composer Michael Fleming for kindly allowing me to steal his music. You can find more of it at michaelflemingmusic.com and thanks to you for listening.